Welcome to the Alternative Assets Podcast with Stefan and Wyatt. This is not another podcast about stocks or venture capital. This is about the wide world of investment opportunities that aren't discussed as much. Our website and newsletter is at alternativeassets.club where you can find a transcript of this episode and many more unique investment ideas worth exploring. Now, let's dive in. All right, welcome everyone. On today's podcast, we have a super cool and unique guest, someone that I'm really excited to speak with. His name is Charlie Swatkins, and he's also known as the Lego Man for his passion and expertise in Legos as an alternative asset class. So Charlie has a project now called All Things Arbitrage, which is a membership site for Amazon FBA beginners and folks who want to learn more about FBA. But he got started with Legos, and he's actually written a massive 34-page guide on buying, selling, and investing in Lego sets which means he's basically one of the world's top experts on the subject. Uh, Today's episode will cover his history with Lego investing and uh, the path he's taken along with his new project, All Things Arbitrage. So I really look forward to talking to him. So Charlie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me on. I look forward to uh, hopefully giving everyone some value into the world of what Lego and arbitrage is like in the UK. Awesome. And so you're, you're based in the UK. Where, whereabouts specifically? So it's just outside of uh, London. I know everyone uh, uses that when they're trying to explain where they're from. <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I'm from a, a little town called Harlow, which is in Essex. I, I'm not quite sure if anyone would know that. But yeah, there's a couple of TV programs. I think it's called The Only Way is Essex. So yes, uh, everyone from the UK will certainly know where Essex is. <laughs> we have a fair amount of um, uh, alternative assets subscribers and listeners who are from the UK. So very cool. Now, before we get started, I've got a super important question that I need to know the answer to. And the question is, have you ever stepped on a Lego with bare feet? <laughs> <laughs> That's a very good question. I've done it more times than I wanted to uh, admit. There was one uh, Lego set that I'd done. I think it must have cost me about 110 quid, um, 110 pound. And it was at Christmas time as well. I remember doing an Amazon FBA shipment and um, I was packing it away and I had so many different lego sets out on the floor ready to put into a box and um yeah out of every box that i i didn't want to step on that was certainly not the one that i wanted to step on um it was yeah like i said 110 pound and i had to list it as used and i think i ended up selling it for half the value in the end just by me stepping on the box so i wouldn't recommend it Oh man, I'm sorry to hear that. That's funny though. All right, so let's let's get into this. So, how did you first get into Lego investing? Take us back. It's a good story and a long story. So, I will dive into Lego uh, before I get to that point. I'll just explain a little bit of how I got into arbitrage because then it will lead me nicely into Lego. Okay. All right, so, basically, the coronavirus started around, in, in certainly in the UK, it was around about March time last year, 2020. And I got placed on furlough. And for uh, those listeners that don't know what furlough is, in the UK, if you're in full-time employment, you basically, it, rather than getting placed as a redundant member of staff and you lose your job, 
you get placed on furlough and you basically had like a free I think my my duration of furlough was three months. So I had no work for three months of the year. So my commission salary at the time, well, it was heavily commission-based. And I realized, well, what can I do now for the next three months? I need to do something. So I went on Twitter and I, I only ever used Twitter just for perusing purposes, really. I never went on there to look at how to make money and Twitter's fantastic for that. And um, I stumbled across a group uh, without mentioning the group itself. It was a reselling group that started around about March. And um, yeah, I think it was about $60 to start um, for a month subscription. And I thought, what's the worst that could happen? And uh, dive straight into it. And within the first month, I think I sold probably about four grand or £4,000 worth of stock. Wow. And from there on, sort of roughly around May time, 2020, that was when I really started to get into buying Lego heavily because within the group that I was in, there was, I think the member count at the time was just shy of 300 uh, members, which is a large group when you're thinking of their nationwide and the scope to buy and a lot of uh, stuff is, I mean, basically as soon as a lead goes into that group, everyone's out trying to find it. So I didn't want to be someone that was reliant on just the leads coming through the group. So I started to look at Lego. Okay. And um, there was nothing in the UK, apart from a couple of YouTube videos from YouTubers, there was nothing in the UK that really was informative about Lego. How do you buy Lego? What goes into buying and holding it for a specific amount of time? What was the reasons why there was such a big collector's market? And that kind of ignited my interest really in Lego from sort of May onwards. Why Legos though? Like how did you... Good question. There's large Twitter accounts that I was following at the time that had a large following and a lot of them were selling Lego sets and and I'll get into this in a bit of detail in in later um, parts of the podcast but the US market with Lego is completely different to the UK market Mm. different prices different sets work well etc etc and um, I was following them and I thought well no one in this group that I'm in is mentioning about Lego so I'm seeing the guys over in the States are really smashing it. How about I see if I can convert that to somehow work well with the UK market? I started to then dive into it a little bit uh, more deeply. The YouTube videos then turned into me looking at articles and I ended up uh, joining some Facebook uh, groups that were like free Facebook groups for members that already sell Lego on Amazon. And that kind of, yeah, snowballed into me nearly 12 months later. I mean, I, I couldn't tell you how much Lego I've got sitting in my in my spare room. <laughs> That's so cool. Okay, so how quickly was were you able to pick this up, right? Like this world of Legos. You know, obviously you're you're not just learning a ton. You're you're actively investing. You're teaching. You're um, involved in these groups. What, what kind of time frame are we talking here? Did this kind of happen over three months, six months? I would probably say it, it's a slow burner to start with. Um, it's not quick money, and I, I would say it's more passive money. Uh, and I hate using the term passive because everyone uses different meanings of that word but it really does get to a point where with lego it becomes very passive um you buy 
a Lego set when you're in a retailer or online, it gets either delivered to your house or you, you take it home, you store it, and then it could be stored for 12 to 24 months before you sell it. So I, I would consider that the true sense of the word passive income because you're not doing anything after the point you've bought it. So you're, you're storing it away for a long time. It could be three to six months before you start understanding the, the different levels of what Lego sets work well, what Lego sets don't, and what kind of Lego sets that you look out for buying at different price points. So I would really say that to give yourself a very good chance of getting started down the Lego road, it's probably six months at the very least where you start to understand it in a lot more depth. So for those who don't understand the market, which is probably 99% of this audience, um, what actually gives a Lego set value, right? Like what makes one Lego set more valuable than another? Sure. Uh, good question. So there's a number of reasons, but the biggest reason for me is, and there's other people that might say different, but for me, it's the retirement of a Lego set. So for those of you that don't know what a retirement is for Lego sets, basically Lego will release Lego sets for um, some varying different timeframes when they release them. But usually the time frame between release and retirement is about 12 to 24 months. So Lego will release a Star Wars Lego set, let's just say today, 14th of May, and then in two years time, they will then discontinue it. And then what that does is it, enables people like myself uh, and other people that do the same as me we can then spot the gaps in the market and basically go and buy these lego sets in two phases before they're retired and after they're retired and the reason why that is the biggest anchor for what makes lego a good alternative asset in my mind is that retailers will never stock these lego sets again so take for example one retailer will have a Star Wars Lego set that was very popular in stores. Once it gets made retired by Lego and it's classified as, as discontinued, there's a gold rush to be made then. <laughs> That's when you start to see everyone trying to climb on that Lego set, if it's a good Lego set, that is. I mean, there's a lot of variances as to what makes a good Lego set. But yeah, I, I would definitely say the biggest anchor is retirement for a start because that's when the cutoff point happens and then the aftermarket kicks into place um i think amazon is a fantastic place to start with lego because they have such a big uh, lego collector's market really so um especially with retired sets and you've also got different themes as well which make make or break lego sets so for example Star Wars, I'm sure everyone is probably aware how big Star Wars is as a, a franchise or a theme. It plays into so many different demographics. I mean, you could be an older generation that's watched previous Star Wars um, films, and then you could be a new generation that's watched all the latest films. And what that allows Star Wars to do in the Lego market is it brings such a big scope of interested parties that if you're looking at buying star wars sets that are retired you're playing out to a large demographic you've got a large audience or customer base to sell to so yeah that, those are a couple of reasons why it makes lego a good alternative asset class in my opinion i think the similarity here is 
to watches. They, they go on a run. And when they are retired, the value goes way up for exactly the same reasons. The problem is, or the difference is rather, that with watches, you don't you don't really know when a watch is going to end its production run. They don't the companies don't exactly announce this. So do you know when a Lego set is gonna be retired? I mean, it looks like it's about what, two years on average, two to three years. Is that is that kind of a hard and fast rule or does that is that variable? Do they announce it? So it, it varies between different themes and different franchises. Uh, so a Star Wars theme will go longer because it's got a bigger audience and it in turn allows Lego to sell even more Lego sets because it's going on for a longer duration. Right. Kind of evergreen, right? I mean, there's always going to be more Star Warses, you know, coming out. Exactly. Whereas the lesser of uh, the themes, let's just take Lego City which is the audience is more catered for 10-year-olds and, and, and minors, you're rarely going to come across minors that have the money to go out there and pay 100, 200 pounds. I mean, there's no 10-year-old on earth, as far as I'm concerned, that's got 200 pounds to just spend on a, a retired Lego set. Yeah, <laughs> They won't even have a bank account at that point. <laughs> well, they have to go to the bank of mommy and daddy for that one, and hopefully they can make a case. Yeah. And, yeah. <laughs> That's it. But um, just to touch on when Lego retires uh, Lego sets, they, they don't actually announce it to the public. What they do is they're very cunning in the sense that they will just drop a link onto their website under the uh, retiring soon page. And that's it. That's all they do. They announce it that way. And you have to keep for those that are um, buying and selling Lego on a daily basis, it's it's a ritual that you wake up in the morning and you check early on in the morning because that's when it usually updates. Wow. And that's how you kind of go from there. And then it's a race to see what retailers stock that Lego set. And then that's when the race really starts. So basically, there's a bunch of people like you out there that are checking this website as, you know, with their morning coffee. And then as soon as they see the, hey, this is going to get retired, it's on to, to source the product as soon as possible. Is that is that pretty much it? Yeah, that's it. I, I mean, the, I like to think that I've got foresight now I've been doing it a while. And what I mean by that is rather than me hoping and waiting for this specific lego set to be retired and be uploaded onto the lego website what i tend to do now is i'll go uh, deeper into um, a lot of other aspects about this but one main thing is the average duration of a lego set between it being stocked and then made retired so for example a star wars lego set and i, I keep referring to star wars because it's a, an evergreen brand as you said they usually go out of um, retirement around about 24 months. That's what I've kind of seen as the sweet spot. So I use a analytical software called Keeper. And again, we'll go into that because it relates into Amazon FBA. Mm -hmm. But um, this software allows me to look at how long the Lego set has been active and it's been in the retailer shelves. And then it allows me to kind of guess when it's going to be retired and that's where the foresight really comes in. You're, you're ultimately kind of guessing when it's going to be made retired. And then what you can kind of do is when you see a retailer stocking a specific Lego set approaching its retirement and it's got a sale on, then that's when you start to buy the Lego sets and hold them until it's retired, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And we'll, we'll definitely get into buying and holding strategies versus quick flips in a bit. But before we get there, I'm just curious, like, I want to know about the sourcing, right? So mm. let's say you wake up one morning and there's a, 
announcement that there's a uh, Lego set that's going to be retired. You need to get that in your hands as soon as possible. How are you actually doing that? I mean, is this just a matter of like, you know, going from store to store and, you know, just stocking up or are you just hitting the online marketplaces first? Take us through your process of actually sourcing product. Yeah, sure. So ultimately, the Lego website is is the holy grail because you're looking on the Lego site for, as I, as I mentioned earlier about the retirement, but more so to understand when Lego are out of stock on their website, it usually means that it's a quite a popular brand or quite a popular set that's being stocked. So you can then start to see when Lego go out of stock, that means that the price disparities on other retailers start to rise. How quickly does that happen though? Does that happen overnight? Does it happen over the course of weeks or how much time do you have for that arbitrage? Depending on set, it varies between set. There's a specific Lego set recently that I can't remember the code for, for what the Lego set is, but it's a very popular. What happened was there was a, a falling out with a specific actor or actress in the latest Mandalorian series. And the actress was one of the minifigures within this specific set and it then turned out to be that this set was very sought after because now the actress is no longer going to be in the latest mandalorian films and the series so now you start to see that all the collectors the star wars collectors want that specific set because of that minifigure so that's where you start to see that when news arrives it does travel very quickly in the lego scene and I'm pretty sure within 24 hours of that news being made about the actress, all of the Lego sets uh, that were stocked across all of the retailers for that specific minifigure was sold out instantly. <laughs> it, it goes very quick and news does travel very fast. So you have to think on your feet as well. And again, foresight is very key because a lot of other people would probably interpret that bit of news as, and don't get me wrong, it is unfortunate. And yeah, you, you kind of have to play off stuff like that. That's where money is to be made, really. And th the price disparity now is that Amazon are stocking it at £90. And I believe that the stock, uh, the set itself costs £40. So, yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's dub at least double the value. And it, that happened overnight as soon as Lego sold out and all the other retailers sold out. So, yeah, news does travel very quick. It's interesting. It makes total sense. It sounds like there's a lot of different ways to understand when you know, there might be a good buying opportunity. And once you understand the market better, you start to learn, you know, when is a good time to strike on the buy side. That's a very good way of putting it. The people that I teach and within all things arbitrage, I say that the more you do something, the more you're consumed within a certain niche, you start to see gaps within the market that other people wouldn't necessarily see. So I'm, I'm a big advocate of niching down and yeah, but you start to see, as I said, gaps in the market and you start to capitalize a lot, uh, a lot faster and more efficiently. And Lego is one of them really. I love it. I think it's so, super cool. So let's talk about the strategies for selling, right? So I think I have a pretty good understanding of, you know, when to buy and how that works. How do you decide when to sell and why to sell? And what are some of the different strategies that you employ? Maybe take us through, you know, what a buy and hold looks like versus a quick flip or an in and out strategy. Definitely. So the buy and hold strategy is what it says, um, really. It's, it's as passive as it gets. Ultimately, you're using software to uh, understand when you're going to buy um, a specific set before it's retired and after it's retired. 
and this software is Keeper. And again, what it allows you to do is it takes you through different price trends throughout the whole history of the Amazon listing. Um, so for me, it's a very statistical approach um, with Lego. You're looking at price trends throughout the whole time it's been on there, when the dips happened, when there was a lot of stock, when there was barely any stock, when the price increases. And yeah, when you're buying in a Lego set for the buy and hold strategy, you're literally going on to Keeper, identifying certain Lego sets, whatever franchise it may be. You go and buy those Lego sets from retailers and then ultimately you hold them for a period of time. Now, the biggest question that I get asked a lot is when is the best time to sell? Now, it's a very ambiguous question because when is the best time to sell? When you're trying to buy a stock off the stock market, there's only one person in the world that is going to sell that at its very peak, sell the stock and get out at its very peak. And there's only one person that's going to buy it at its very lowest. So I guess that that rule remains the same when you're buying a Lego set. Someone's going to lose and someone's going to win, but it's about finding a, a happy balance. And again, going back to the statistical approach of it, Keeper allows you to have foresight and also tells you how many people have stock of this said Lego set. And you can kind of say, right, I bought this Lego set for £50. And I know from all of the um, buying criteria that I use, and I'll go into this in a lot more detail in a second, it's ticked all of my buying criteria. I bought the set and I'm basing my judgment on when to sell it at it basically reached on the graph. It reached £115 in September 2019. So I know that the price can get to that point. And that is kind of how you, you come to a decision on when you buy and when you sell. It's it's very statistical and you're looking at graphs to make your decisions. It's not kind of putting your finger up in the air and hoping for the best and it reaches your price. It, it genuinely is very statistical. I love the data-driven approach. So uh, for the audience, Keepa, it's, it's K-E-E-P-A.com. And it basically has, you know, it's price history charts for millions of Amazon products, right? So it doesn't just track Legos for everyone. It's just, it's Amazon price tracking. And what they do is they not only track prices, but you can also set up alerts. Correct. So when prices drop or when they go out of stock. Now, have you set up those kind of alerts? I have, yes. So I set alerts for all of the Lego sets that I've either stocked that are now retired or they're in the process of retiring or they're very sought after Lego sets. What I do is I make a list and I start from the top and I work my way down and I look on Amazon and I track uh, set reminders of whenever Amazon come into stock of this said Lego set or any on the list, I then get a notification that arrives in my inbox and it tells me the price that Amazon are back in stock. And um, yeah, it's it's almost one of those when you go onto a retailer's site and a product is out of stock, you then put your email address in, don't you? And then it sends an alert to say, right, we're back in stock. That's kind of what Keeper does, but it's very quick and swift. And again, to go back to the point about news travels fast, you've got to imagine that there's probably another 500 other individuals in the UK doing the same thing as me. So yeah, it's it, right. you have to act fast with those notifications but keeper is 
in my opinion, the best software that links with Amazon. I, I wouldn't be able to live without it, in my opinion. So I, I think for the audience that they may not know or understand just how much repricing actually goes on on Amazon. When you search for a product on Amazon and you see the list of uh, sellers selling that that product, well, first of all, you probably don't even pay much attention to the list because you're just paying attention to the, who, yeah. you know, the buy box, as they call it, right? And that's the most important thing. But even beside that, there's so much repricing happening at any given time. I mean, merchants reprice based on time of day, based on day of week, based on right. availability, of course, based on you know, there's undercutters who just want to price exactly one penny below the buy box yeah. price or whatever it might be. And so these merchants use software like Keepa to not just get alerted on this stuff, but also automate the process of listing, right, um, based on these rules. Are you doing that as well? Are you setting this up so it automatically lists on your behalf? Or are you just like to get the notification and then make a, a manual call on whether or not to list? So it's the second part. I have the tracker alert me and everything from that point is uh, manually done by myself. Mainly because as soon as the notification okay. comes through, you've then got to check a lot of other factors. Whilst I might have set this notification for Keeper to alert me three months ago, a lot might have changed since then. So that is really from that point on, I've then got to check everything again. I've got to go through my buying criteria to ensure that I'm I'm not buying the set when I don't need to, if that makes sense. And just on the yeah. repricing side of things, to make my life easier, I realized um, at the start of my Amazon journey, um, I was doing it the, the extremely long way. Whenever you want to change a price on a, a specific item on Amazon, you would normally have to do it manually yourself just to stay competitive because prices do fluctuate. Now, there's actually software out there. Um, there's loads of different softwares, and I use one that specifically does it automatically for me. So once I've listed an item and I've realized that I want X price for it, I will stay at that and I will then go onto my software and set a minimum and a maximum price. And then it just chops and changes between that price manu uh, automatically without me needing to do anything from there on. So it just shaves a lot of time down, really. I'm looking through the Lego handbook, the 34-page uh, PDF that sure. I uh, mentioned earlier in the podcast. And in this handbook, there are graphs and charts that I, I'm actually, I'm, I'm, my mind is blown at how complex <laughs> some of these charts are. This looks like something out of a Bloomberg terminal, and it's all for the price of like a Lego Star Wars Anakin Podracer 20th anniversary set. Price history going back years you have your entry points, your exit points. I look at this and my mind is blown. I mean, this is the kind of, you know, data-driven approach to alternative asset investing that we love, you know, here at, at Alternative Assets. But I mean, you've made this into like science. This is fantastic. So I have to ask you, if you had to kind of, you know, whittle it down to its basics, would you say that Lego investing is kind of like real estate and that you don't make money when you sell, you make money when you buy? Yes. So it's really the buying side of the equation that's the most important. Is that is that accurate? It is. It's not always about what, what you sell a Lego set for. Ultimately, that's good when you're converting it into profit. But without actually making good buying decisions um, and sticking to buying criteria, it doesn't matter because... If you don't buy a good Lego set, you're not going to make any profit on it in the first place. So making these buying decisions based on data and statistics 
that allows me the the cutting edge to get ahead basically yeah i I mean looking through your lego guide i can see how you have an an edge over everyone else doing this and i can see why you've been so successful in it thank you one final question about the lego side of things before we move to all things arbitrage so what's something that you wish you knew about lego investing before you kind of started like everyone makes mistakes when they're first starting out with you know, e-commerce or FBA or whatever it might be. Do you have maybe like a mistake you made either on the buy side or the sell side? What's something that you wish you you could, um, you know, kind of do over? Yes, I've got too many. (laughs) (laughs) I would say my biggest one to start off, if if anyone is interested in starting to uh, invest in Lego, buy and sell for profit, one thing that I would make abundantly clear is stay away from new Lego sets that have just been released. And the reason I say that is because there is no data, there's no statistics to back up your entry points, your buy points, and and ultimately what, what the sales are going to be like for that specific Lego set. But don't you have comps? I mean, you'd have comparable sales, right? Just like in anything else. Yeah, you, you do. But then when it comes to the comps, say, for example you've got a a similar set and a similar size within that uh, theme. There is a little correlation between the performance, but then what you've got to imagine is when a Lego set is being released, there is so much stock that is, uh, it's just in abundance in every retailer that ultimately with Lego investing, you're, you're buying based on scarcity as well. There's no point going to buy a Lego set that's just been released when there is every retailer under the sun selling that for retail price. We're interested in buying Lego sets to sell over retail price. So that's where I tend to steer my customers and and, and steer the people that I teach about investing into Lego, always to look at the, the end phase, the retirement phase, more so than buying new Lego sets. So that's one that I would like to mention. And another that I've been caught out recently with is don't sell too early in the retirement phase because everyone needs cash flow. And when Lego, uh, the buy and hold strategy is very passive. It comes with cash flow sometimes being a little weaker than other business models. So for me, I've realized that you've got to make a decision early on that once you buy a Lego set, you've kind of, in essence, lost that money for the next 18 months until you actually redeem it and you sell it. I was going to ask, how long do you hold on to them for typically? Is it, you said about 18 months? Yeah. So you would, you would look to normally sell between, well, there's, there is sweet spots with different themes, but you, you sort of, your entry point and your sale point is made pretty much when you're buying it because you want to know when you're going to be selling it as well and you have a a price in mind that you want to sell it at as well when you start but usually i mean i'm probably early on in my journey compared to a lot of the the masters in the us that are doing this but yeah 12 to 18 months is kind of a, a good a good point that you can start offloading a lot of these retired sets because you mentioned about the undercutting that is very prevalent in uh, the UK. And I know certainly by speaking to some of the guys in the US that it happens quite a lot. And the way that you move past undercutting is the longer that you hold a Lego set, that's where supply and demand comes into it. Because if you're in it for the long haul and you've got a Lego set that you know is popular right now, but it's not at the price that you want because of the abundance of stock, the longer you hold it, the more the price increases to the, the point that you want to sell it at. So it's quite a simple maths equation really the longer you hold it the more money you get for lego sets 
It's interesting, like, I was going to ask about similarities between, you know, um, cars, the car market. I'm not sure if you're a car guy at all, but in the car market, it's interesting because you've got you got basically two markets um, with uh, cars and, and watches are, are like this as well. You've got the new market, right? So that's the stuff that just gets just recently got released. And we've talked a lot about that. And then you have the vintage market. And there's no like hard and fast rule for when, you know, something becomes vintage. It's kind of like when you you know it, when you see it. Yeah. But, you know, you know, when you see a vintage car, it's a vintage car. You know, when you see a vintage watch, it's a vintage watch. Are there vintage Lego sets that are just extremely, exceedingly valuable and really tough to find and collectors just fawn over them? Yeah, that is definitely very accurate. There is. And again, I keep mentioning Star Wars because it is the holy grail of Lego themes. I think you just love Star Wars, man. That's (laughs) (laughs) yeah, there's a certain toy or uh, item, should I say, that's in the Star Wars films called a TIE Fighter. I'm not sure whether you're familiar with it. TIE Fighters on every release always, always, always increase to the maximum price. From the research that I've been doing, if you go through and look at going back years and years, the TIE Fighter models that have been released always go for the higher prices. Um, we're talking the within the sort of three, four, five hundred pound marks. Um, and you could buy these TIE Fighters Right now, there's one in stock that I've actually got that cost me sixty four ninety nine, and I plan on holding that for eighteen to twenty four months possibly, and I can only imagine I'm going to get three hundred pound for it. So yeah, it's the return on investment percentage is is very high when it comes to certain Lego sets, but Tie Fighters usually work out the best when it comes to star wars are there any uh boba fett characters i know he's like the that's like the one that if you have a boba fett like in the original packaging yeah i don't know if that that translates to lego at all (laughs) yeah so there is a boba uh, boba fett lego set i've i've actually bought and sold a few but yeah i i mean i i try to basically diversify my lego sets between a broad range of uh, themes and I, I had so much at the time when boba fett was um being sold in retailers that i, I just made the decision to pass up on that <laughs> last lego question before we move to uh, all things arbitrage what's the least valuable lego sets and why yes the least valuable lego sets um and i mentioned one of the themes earlier which was lego city and Predominantly, the reason why it's the least valuable is because the audience is uh, basically young people. Um, And with that comes young people don't tend to have bank balances, do they? They could readily uh, have readily available to go and buy these Lego sets. And with Lego City, it's quite interesting because the average time between it being released and going into retailers and it being retired is very short because and I mean this in a non-disrespectful way to young children, but the attention span is 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 very low, isn't it? So they always want the latest, newest things, the newest shiny things. And that's why Lego city sets are constantly replenished with different models. And I've definitely noticed that there's not really a big market, um, certainly in the UK. I don't know about any other nation's markets, but yeah, the UK doesn't have a very good one for Lego city. Very interesting. All right. So... Let's talk about All Things Arbitrage. So you have another project uh, called All Things Arbitrage or ATA. Tell us a little bit about that. How did you migrate from Legos to, you know, FBA to to All Things Arbitrage? Sure. It's um, a funny story because where All Things Arbitrage is now, I would never have imagined where it is now from when I started it on December 31st because 
um, I was in a, another reselling group that I was kind of helping out with Lego leads. Um, and everyone was kind of asking me questions about what Lego sets to buy. And they were always sending me uh, walls when they were in retailers, they would just basically take a photo of a wall of Lego <laughs> and they would send it to me and say which ones are good and which ones are not. So you basically, you're a, you're a Lego consultant is what you're saying. Yes, basically at that point. So what I wanted to do was rather than waste everyone's time because I've got things to do, I wanted to make sure that I was giving everyone my fullest attention. So I realized in order to do that, I needed to be better in, in the way that I format these leads. And on December 31st, I decided to step away from the a group that I was in, the reselling group, and start up my own one called All Things Lego. And to be pretty frank with you, I thought there would be low uptake. I thought there would be probably 10 to 20 people that join um, and it'd be a, a close-knit community. And I would just be sort of giving free leads out pretty much. And then it's, I swiftly found out that within a week, I had over 60 members <laughs> um, that joined and it's just started to build from there, really. And it, it snowballed into the sense that it was Lego at first, uh, hence the reason why it was called All Things Lego. And I was constantly updating the members with what Lego sets to buy, how long to hold Lego sets for, um, where to buy them from. And then... Oh, yeah, I kind of ended up meeting Ben, Ben Wright. His name's Arv King on Twitter. So you, you partnered with this guy, Ben, and he goes by, uh, he's known as the Arb King. Yes. So you guys had, had kind of met each other through this group, is that correct? Yeah, so we, we've known each other now. As we both started the same week, going back to April 2020. Um, he was still in full-time employment, but he was uh, he had to work from home because of COVID. And he wanted something to get his teeth stuck into. And I, I got placed on furlough. So we both joined this group initially. And yeah, we started speaking to each other and really enjoyed speaking to each other about just everything to do with reselling, really. And I, I believe sort of eight months later, um, yeah, we kind of agreed to do a partnership. It took a while to get started because we, we both had different projects going on at the same time. But we recently basically partnered up and, and launched all things arbitrage and yeah that it kind of all, all snowballed from december 31st <laughs> and didn't really think that there was going to be much uptake to now we've got just shy of 300 members and the premise of the group itself is in my opinion it's an educational service we set it up uh or i certainly set up all things lego to help people make their life easier when it comes to investing in lego but now we've got all things arbitrage and it's a broader uh, scope of uh, products that we're buying and, and selling. It really is an educational service in the true sense of the word, because we don't want it to just be we send out leads um, and then everyone jumps on the same lead and then they, they go out, buy it and sell it um, because then it's just a race to the bottom kind of thing. We want to teach people how to do what myself and Ben do. Um, so that's kind of what we wanted when we set up the group, All Things Arbitrage. This is so cool. I love it. I love it because, well, first of all, it's just a great story. And second, it's actually a lot of parallels to alternative assets because this is basically what uh, Wyatt and I did. Uh, I'm not sure if, you, if you're familiar, but uh, that's a big part of our story as well. I had the alternative assets newsletter and Wyatt had 
his fractional arbitrage uh, newsletter, which was um, just phenomenal writing on fractional investment opportunities. And uh, we basically just kind of met and we were fans of each other's work and we decided to to join forces and create a you know whole new paid offering and a whole new product together. So I think it's awesome. I love it. It's uh, very similar to our story and it's super cool to see. So you guys are in business now together. You've got you said 300 uh, paying members. That's fantastic. Yes, it is. Um, it's crazy to think that it's taken just uh, just over five months to get to this point. Great job. So what kind of products do you guys source? I mean, you're well beyond Legos at this point. What are you guys uh, into? What are you buying? What are you selling? So um, you've got two different senses of um, arbitrage. You've got online arbitrage which is kind of where i like to put my specialty to and then you've got retail arbitrage um on the other side of things and we try and put leads as much as we can whenever we we find out that there's a profitable lead it we put it into the group and what these leads consist of it could be a a swimming pool it could be a, a chimney slash like fire basket type thing um, then obviously we've got large bits of Lego um, that takes up quite a lot of the uh, the group itself. Um, yeah, it it range it can range with every different trend that happens throughout the year. Like for example, during January time, everyone wants to get fit, don't they? <laughs> they want to go back to the gym. So we were selling weights and fitness equipment, um, and then the trend starts to happen where it comes to summer, and that's where the pools um the the fire baskets come out and then the trend really that i um kick into is when toys start to come into fruition um sort of around september time and that's where the the leaves will really evolve into becoming um the toys and lego group again So you guys are taking the same kind of data-driven approach that you are able to kind of arb the heck out of the lego market yeah and you're basically applying that to whatever theme or whatever trend you deem appropriate based on the season or, or whatever. Correct. Very cool. Tell, tell us a little bit about your operations and your logistics. Um, do you guys have a warehouse? How, how quickly are you moving inventory? And also, how do you and Ben kind of split the operations? I'm always fascinated by that dynamic. Sure. So Ben's side of things, um, I'll probably end up butchering this. Forgive me, Ben. <laughs> but um, <laughs> So I'll speak about Ben's side of things because he's scoured incredibly in a short space of time. Um, I think he done just shy of £60,000, I believe, in March um, of this year. Um, when you think in 12 months, you you could say to yourself, I've done 60,000 in revenue in one month. That's just crazy numbers. That's good. Um, yeah, that's really good. And he takes a very hands-off of, approach because he's still in full-time employment. Um, it's a bit trickier for him to fulfill the orders him, himself. So he actually employs all of his stock goes to a prep center or he ships it into Amazon FBA. So once he does he's um, sourcing for the day he looks at items that he wants to buy and again referring back to keeper it's a very um, data-driven way of looking at things once he's decided from the data that he's going to buy it he will then get it shipped to the prep center and then he doesn't have to do anything from there on and don't get me wrong that comes that price is at a premium because you're asking someone else to take on um, the time and allocating resources to ship your items. Um, so that's how he's 
been able to scale at such a quick pace because his hands-off approach is well the only thing that I'm going to do is source the products and then let someone else do it at a, a small premium whereas myself stupidly or not I, I'm very hands-on <laughs> um, I like to stay in control of things because it gives me an understanding of my business it's in its broad scale and sometimes I, I i go through stages where i'm manually sourcing in, in retail stores or i'm doing online sourcing and um, to look at the best deals online i will then if i buy it online get it shipped to my house um and potentially my, my house you could call it a warehouse at this moment in time yeah it looks like a, it might as well be a warehouse i'm guessing right yeah, just uh it might as well boxes be. everywhere and <laughs> So yeah, and then I take on the phase where I either store it um, in my house. I really do need to um, get a warehouse now. I'm at that phase where I, I do need to um, get a warehouse, invest in one because, like I said earlier, it's it's getting beyond a joke. <laughs> uh, my missus would kill me if she uh, uh, really knew the um, how much we've got in stock. <laughs> oh man i've been there believe me <laughs> yeah but um it, it's good i like to take on the hands-on approach but then you, you're obviously you're stuck with time you're having to try and make you free up your time to then ship the items out yourself um so i'm now at the yeah. age where i probably need a prep center or a warehouse well i mean that's that's the great thing about fba right you know i mean you guys are obviously huge fba um boosters um i've, I've read whatever you know everything you guys have, have been writing about it and um, it seems to be a huge part of your your operations. Why have any physical inventory on hand, right? Like, why not just go full FBA, honestly? Yeah, correct. Um, you've got a point in certain aspects. I, I guess that speaking from my uh, perspective, I've got a lot of Lego sets that I need to really store because if I ship them into Amazon FBA, there comes with storage fees uh, associated with you storing items in their warehouses and it also affects what's called an IPI score. Um, I think it's index performance um, rating that if you have excess inventory at Amazon warehouses, then they look badly on your scoring. And then potentially you rule yourself out of having um, certain allocations for stock. So that's why you have to really judge it. it inventory management is really, really important when it comes to Amazon FBA because for most people that are not accustomed to selling on Amazon, they just kind of hear Amazon FBA, you can ship your items into their warehouse and be done with it. That's not necessarily the case because if you imagine every seller done the same thing, Amazon would have full warehouses where they wouldn't know what to, what to do. Um, so they have to kind of set scorings in place to manage or best manage their way of um, utilizing storage space. So yeah, that's, to answer your question about shipping everything into Amazon, I wouldn't be able to because I've got so much Lego stock that I'm holding for a long period of time. Yeah, interesting. And I mean, you're absolutely right. You're not getting charged anything to hold it in your your um in your place. So um, why why change that? Also, there's probably some risk about you know getting uh, a little bit damaged here. You know, when you're shipping to an FBA distribution center. The people that are receiving it don't have the same level of care and attention as you clearly clearly have for these sets. So there's some risk there. It's an interesting dynamics for sure. Very cool. So you guys are growing this FBA business. You're using data. 
Um, you're splitting the duties. It sounds awesome. I mean, I, I love these kind of stories. So, you know, have you guys thought of kind of like what your end goal is? Or are you looking to kind of just ride this thing uh, while you can? Do you have an exit plan or are you, you guys not thinking that far ahead just yet? My exit plan before I spoke to uh, Ben, um, before our partnership started, was always to uh, do private label. Oh, private label, for for those that don't know, is basically you're buying um specific items that you've researched that perform well on Amazon and you basically create a brand and stick that brand uh, and apply it for your own business. Um, So you could go to the likes of China or any manufacturing country and go and buy boatloads of stock and rebrand it under a specific branding that you've chosen and you've got your own business. And there's, as, as you mentioned, Stefan, there's so many people doing that. I think this uh, Frasio company are buying private label companies um, that are operating on Amazon. And that's kind of where I see my journey going ultimately, because whilst Amazon has been so good to me and allowed me to leave my, my previous employment and and now work full time on this, um, I see that private label is the next step in my journey because until I do I until I do private label I don't necessarily have a brand if that makes sense yeah it does I've always been interested in making my own brand and have have my own brand in so that's definitely the next step for me that sounds awesome you know with Amazon differentiation is so tough for a seller right Amazon makes differentiation tough for sellers on on purpose they don't really particularly want sellers to have a brand, so to speak, that they want Amazon to be the brand. And, and that makes sense. And that's fine. But, you know, one way around that is, you know, you know, the private label route for sure. That's definitely one way to build a brand, command a little bit higher of a price point, or at least not kind of face that same race to the bottom that so many other Amazon sellers find themselves in. It's, it's just an ever present race to, to cut costs and to, um, you know, rate race to the bottom on prices, um, even during periods of high inflation, like now, I mean, it's, it's tricky. The margins are tight and Amazon's selling is tough business, but yeah, yeah. I think you're, you're, uh, you're spot on with the uh, private label approach. Very cool. Um, you know, what, what are your words of advice, right? So like if, if people listening to this are super inspired to, you know, get into data-driven F- FBA arbitrage, or maybe even Lego arbitrage or finding whole new markets, you know, what's one thing you think people should know before they go down this route? What's something that you would you would tell them? So I actually uh, wrote this down on, on my notepad in big writing, uh, big letters, and it, it states it's not easy. <laughs> um, words of wisdom to people that um, are inspired to get onto Amazon and start selling not just Lego, but anything um, on Amazon's platform. Um, I'm sure it varies with performance on different marketplaces. But for me, Amazon is an amazing once in a lifetime opportunity that I'm I'm here to try and make the best of, but it's not been easy. And what I mean by that is Amazon has thousands and thousands of nuances um, and different quirks on its platform that even today, when people within the group ask me certain questions, I still don't know the answer to because I've never experienced these types of things. So I would just say to people that are looking to get onto Amazon, act now. Don't wait to think that you know all the information because trust me, you won't know all the information until you actually start and then experience these uh, different types of issues. Makes perfect sense. You're absolutely right. And in terms of data 
and ways to give yourself an advantage. Obviously, we've talked about uh, Keepa quite a bit on this uh, episode. What other software out there would you recommend people um, employ if they want to give themselves a data advantage in the marketplace? I'll tell you what I use in my arsenal when I'm buying different um, Lego sets and different items. So I've got softwares that consist of Keeper, which allows you to obviously know different price trends and history throughout the listing. And then I've got what's called Seller Amp SAS, which gives you a snapshot of the headline facts and figures of that specific listing that you're on. So you can punch in the buyer price that you can buy at, the sell price that it's currently um, on the buyer box. It will then shoot down all of the different associated fees. um, And it gives you the real snapshot of what what you need to do in order to get um, profit at a certain price point. So I I say to a lot of the people within all things arbitrage that Keeper and Buybot, uh, sorry, um, Selleramp, SAS, they, they go hand in hand. Um, I would say that you need to use both at the same time. And then I've got uh, Profit Protector Pro, which is a repricer that I explained earlier on in the podcast. It just, you set a, a minimum price that you would like and you set a maximum price. And then there's an algorithm that goes on behind the scenes with this software that changes every so often. And I've definitely seen an uptake on the amount of times I get the buy box, um, which ultimately is key. You want to be in the buy box for as much as as you can. Um, I think a stupid stat that I heard was 80, I think it was 80% of all sales go through the buy box on Amazon. I'm surprised it's that low. I mean, it's, I, I would, I would have said, would have said like 95%. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for, the, for those who don't know, like the, the buy box is basically like when you buy something on Amazon, just you click buy now, like in the upper right, like <laughs> the big button, that's what we call the buy box. Now you don't have to click that button. You can fish through the 3000 sellers that are offering different permutations of that product uh, for slightly different prices. But not, yeah, I mean, if you're saying 80, 85%, suffice to say that most sales on Amazon are definitely people who just click, yeah. you know, buy this and now. There's definitely a, a clear correlation between when there is no buy box and it's being suppressed on a certain listing that, that you'll see a reduction in the amount of sales because I mean, this day and age, people just want the decision to be made for them. So if a buy box is there and it says add to cart, they're going to do it. If it's not, then it's another thing that they've got to make. But one thing before I go that I think that the listeners might find funny is before I signed up to sell on Amazon, it blew my mind because I actually thought that anything that I bought throughout the whole time Amazon has existed and I've had an account, always thought it was Amazon that was selling the product. As we're explaining now, there's thousands and thousands of third-party resellers. So I, I never knew that until I started to um, look into it. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. So just for just looking this up right now, so 50% of all sales on Amazon marketplaces come from third-party sellers, 50%, yeah. half. That's tremendous. That's yeah. huge. And uh you know, there's just millions and millions of Amazon sellers out there. Competition is rough, but one way to get ahead is to have the data, understand markets and understand when to buy and, and when and how to sell. So 
with that said, I love your guys' approach. Um, I think you, you have an awesome story. Charlie, you've carved out a super cool niche, and I wish you and Ben the best of luck going forward. Thanks for uh, coming on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Hopefully the listeners got some value out of it. I'm sure they did. Thanks again, bud. Take care. Thanks for tuning in. We sure hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, please be sure to subscribe and give us a nice review for this podcast. It means a lot. And remember, you can find a transcription of this episode, along with all past issues of our weekly newsletter at our website, alternativeassets.club. See you next time.